The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by Peruvian research professor Miklos Lucas, who has been giving popular talks on all things transhumanism, technocracy, dystopian scientific dictatorship, and the Great Reset. These are all things which are now coming upon us, and Dr. Lucas will tell us more. Uh, gracias por acompañarnos hoy. ¿Cómo están? Well, thank you, Herboye, for, for that introduction. Estamos bien. We are fine. And I'm happy to talk to you about any things of interest for you and your audience. All right. Uh, I wanted to start with something I heard you say uh, on a recent interview that you gave to LifeSite, I believe. And I feel the same way. Uh, you said that you don't want to waste your time researching for papers where you have to comply with you know, proper pronoun usage and political correctness in journals, uh, papers which will be read by only you and your mother, uh, that you want to do something more impactful, such as writing your book with full creative uh, freedom and putting your material out on YouTube and social media. I've met prominent academics in the field of international relations who've not only lost their jobs for telling the cold and hard truth, but have been blacklisted And, you know, thus other academics saw what happened to them and then they were intimidated and, and shut up. Uh, I taught in academia and I felt restricted in the same way um, that you described, but I, I could care less. And so, you know, I did have classes taken from me as a result of sticking my head too high above water. And so I started this podcast and have reached many more people than I ever did teaching and find this freedom more fulfilling. And, and you said that you don't care about being called a conspiracy theorist and know that carving your own path means you'll be shunned by mainstream academia, which is part of the establishment anyway, so who cares, right? Uh, and so I feel that this is an important point, this is strength and courage, which is something more people need to do both at their workplace and in their daily lives. So could you just uh, speak to this before we get into the Great Reset? Well, yes, you have just mentioned a very important point, which tends to be underplayed or you know undercovered, which is uh, academic freedom. It's a, it, it's a crucial aspect right now. Um, not being aligned to the progressive discourse, you know, gender, abortion, climate change, um, multiculturalism, tolerance, and all these buzzwords that come with, with a progressive package. If you are not aligned, you will have tough times in most universities, at least in the biggest ones in the West, in the most prominent. And, um, well, I have to say that Uh, thank God, in my case, um, so far at the universities that I have worked, uh, the last one was a, a course I taught at the University of Essex. I must say in their favor that although I had a problem with one student because of my views, she reported me to the student union, um, they were very, very open and kind. So in my experience, uh, Essex has been a good university. Manchester treated me well also when I was doing my PhD there and I, when I taught as a graduate uh, as teaching assistant. At ESAN in Peru, uh, where I was also a, a, a professor at the business school, academic freedom, although my views were not so popular among, among professors, not among the students. This is very interesting, you know. And, and in my current institution, Universidad de San Martín de Porres, I have full academic freedom which is good because in, in this university, which is a, a leading private university in my country, there are views from everyone. Every view is, is, is you know, we have progressive, we have Marxists, we have right-wingers, we have everything. That's, that's what universities are about. This is the concept of university, no universitas, the universe. But yeah, in terms of, of publishing, I have published a book chapter at a leading publishing company, Edward Elgar, 
So, you know, about science, technology, innovation in Peru, I have taught, I have published a paper in a respected journal. But uh, again, as you say, there are two considerations. First, academic freedom, uh, which means intellectual freedom. You are subject to so many senseless uh, criteria for publishing, you know, using pronouns or using inclusive language or, you know, you cannot openly discuss certain topics because you know it will not go through the peer review process. You know this. And the, the fact that you work so hard to do a piece of research that is so tiny and so irrelevant at some point that you ask your, yourself, why am I going to spend two, three, four years from the moment I start the research until I get the paper published, going through five, six, seven rejections um, for something that no one will read. The world right now is in a very, very uh, crucial moment. And the um, gap between the ones who know and the ones who don't know keeps increasing as everything. There's asymmetries of information, asymmetries of power, asymmetries of political power, financial freedom, and asymmetries of education. So then again, this uh, say of universities becoming ivory towers is more true than ever. Is more true than ever. And not only that, you, be, uh, besides being totally disconnected from reality with these discourses, you know, this dominant narrative of gender, equality, feminism, things that are so unimportant for day-to-day -day lives of many people who have to cope with food security, with shelter, with health. So, you know, whatever, if you use or not, the, the rainbow flag is absolutely irrelevant for them. Then you come up and say this, this academy is totally detached from reality. And the other thing is that uh, science, and I wouldn't say science, truth, truth has been subjected or has been overcome or surmounted by politics. And this is a fact. This is undeniable fact. And it is, and they say, what's the proof? Well, it's very simple. Everyone talks exactly the same. <laughs> what, what other proof do you want? So considering the fact that we need to reach to many more people that need to democratize education in the proper sense, the need to spread opinions that are challenging because that's where progress comes through, you know, challenging points of view. And the fact that I don't want to spend two or three or four years more dealing with one paper, which will be read by my mother and myself, took me to this road. And to be honest, uh, when they brand me conspiracy theorist, I really don't, don't give you know what, because I prove it in the ground. Come and debate with me and show me that you are intellectually superior or more well prepared than I am. And we will see who wins in the, in the battlefield of ideas. Yeah, I, I totally agree, and I, I've had the, the the same experience. You you can call me. I have enough self esteem. Like I don't care what I, I know who I am. I don't care what you call me. Uh, and, and as well as what you talk about food security. I mean, I've traveled the planet. I've I've lived in in the deserts of Mongolia and Kazakhstan, uh, in Europe and in, in the Americas. And as you say, like the principal thing that people care about is is food security, shelter, and and just getting by. And they have enough trouble with that that they don't care about other things. So I've seen with just all of these population groups that, that, that I've lived lived uh, with, that's their primary concern. And they don't care about, like, as you say, these, these okay. other secondary the things. Priorities are, are turned upside down. And uh, yeah, I really don't care. I always check who is criticizing me. 
not only in terms of, of their academic origins or ideologies, but also where the funding comes from. That's very yeah. simple. Yeah. All right. So, so we face uh, before us this, this beast of uh, technocracy, which uh, I call, which is scientific dictatorship. Uh, it's transhumanism repackaged as the Great Reset. And you've been talking a lot about this. I believe you're writing a book uh, about this that uh, you said you're waiting to see how the ele U.S. election turns out before, before you um, uh, get it published. But, you know, I've been waiting for this moment ever since I was a child uh, and not, not something that I've been wanting to happen, but just uh, I've been reading about this. You know, I didn't think it would come so soon as a youth. I voraciously read, you know, dystopian literature and perhaps because I have a biblical worldview and as the Bible paints an image of the end of um, history, it tells us that one day there will come one single global authority that will absolutely crush the nations and the peoples of the world. It says that people will have to submit to some kind of global beast system and all that it stands for uh, or not be allowed to function in society otherwise. And this kind of paints the picture of a dystopia and scientific dictatorship. On this podcast, we've interviewed technocracy expert Patrick Wood, who details how the scientific uh, dictatorship movement really took off in the 1930s and how people like Elon Musk's father was a part of this movement. And so there are many levels to this, you know, the political, economic, sociocultural, religious, and your expertise, uh, uh, you know, technological, your expertise has been tying these things uh, together. So where do we begin and where would you like to begin in deconstructing this, this system now rising before us? Well, because of its complexity, you can start actually anywhere because it, it reaches every aspect of our lives, in every sector of our, of our lives, in every productive, productive economy, political sphere. Um, this, this resembles, I, my, my worldview my world is not uh, within a biblical perspective. I am a cultural Christian, but I have uh, certain doubts about the existence of God. But I'm still a philo Christian, so I fight again. I fight alongside my Christian friends and everyone, my Marxist friends who are against this technocracy. Actually, uh, if you allow me in my YouTube channel, uh, I think a couple of days more, in two more days, I'll I'll uh, I'll, I'll upload a video with uh, Diego Fusaro, a prominent Marxist uh, f Italian philosopher who is exactly in the same line with us. So it, it, it cuts across, you know, it's not a matter of ideologies. It's not a matter of, of economic views. It's a matter of who defends freedom, who is against this. It's as simple as that. Now, um, these are these, uh, what you call scientific uh, technocracy. Um, it can be given that name. You can also talk about uh, techno-collectivism or techno-feudalism. Many, many different names. All will make sense. That's fine. It resembles or it calls upon the ideas of uh, Henri de Saint-Simon in early uh, 19th century. You know, uh, Henri de Saint-Simon, he was a, a French thinker and he came up with this idea that progress was inevitable and uh, societies should be ruled by engineers and priests of science. And then the positivists, um, mainly Auguste Comte, the father of, of French, uh, of sociology and positivism, came up with a very similar idea. He was a disciple of, of Henri de Saint-Simon. So these ideas are not new, they are recycled. But now we have reached a point where technological development allows for the possibility of many of these things becoming true, as the case of China will show without 
any doubt. You know, the uh, surveillance state model that uh, operates right now in China, which was officially launched in uh, November last year after some years of trials, but where you live currently under a surveillance state where every aspect of your of your life is known by the authorities, where you go, what you do, who do you talk to, what do you buy, what do you eat, what are your habits, what time do you go to bed, who do you meet with, everything. And with the power of, of algorithms and this, um, this technology called artificial intelligence, the most, um, I would say, fearful uh, aspect of it, the most, uh, um, how do you say, the, the thing that gives you more... Um, Mm, scared that the thing that scares you the most is the predictive power of artificial intelligence so basically you cannot read the future humans cannot read the future but uh, algorithms can predict your decisions in some cases with between 70 and 90 percent of of precision which is basic which is a de facto prediction of the future you know this guy will do this 90 percent or 70 percent of chances when they when they are so ahead of you, the control is absolute. So, yes, what we have seen now is is that consolidation of this uh, global technocracy. And to think it only in Western terms is absolutely uh, irresponsible and does not paint the whole picture. You cannot con conceive a techno feudalist world without the co without including China in this variable. Because China is so big, so important, so relevant in so many aspects, militarily, technolo technologically, economically, every aspect of China permeates the world. So in the West, you will have counterparts or partners of the Chinese uh, model. And when you see, and who are these partners? Well, it's very simple. Uh, these are big tech guys, uh, big finance guys, big pharma, all the big corporate transnational uh, businesses. And their meeting points are many. Perhaps the most prominent is currently is the World Economic Forum, but you have other forums. So when people say Bilderberg Club, yeah, it's part of the truth. It's it's not a when they say that everything is Bilderberg, that's a conspiracy theory because conspiracy the theory, something falls on the category of of conspiracy theory when every single problem in the world has the same exact source. So yeah, that would be a conspiracy theory. But when we say it's World Economic Forum, it could be Bilderberg, it can be the Council of Foreign Affairs, the Aspen Institute, the uh, World Bank, the United Nations structures, uh, which by the way, of the 15 independent agencies that they have, uh, I think three or four are led by Chinese. Uh, another three, four are where Chinese uh, are in the second or third ranks of those organizations. So when you see these uh, factual things, um, then you start saying, well, this is not a conspiracy. This is a, you know, is a puzzle, a very complex puzzle. And you start putting the different pieces and everyone adds, according to their expertise, some pieces to this puzzle. But um, I think my, my, my contribution has been to put together most of these different parts and provide a narrative and I would always place it in, in, in uh, scientific terms, a hypothesis, okay? A hypothesis of how things are working now and uh, current events and past events and what we see right now happening in the world is validating this hypothesis. So my hypothesis is not actually being discredited by the critics, the critics it's being validated by the events and the facts. 
So when I say there's a there's collusion between the Chinese Communist Party and Western and Western leaders from politics, from business, from finance, that's uh, I think it's a factual statement at this point. Now, where would you see this collaboration? You would see it with the Democratic Party, with the Democrats. That's a factual thing. Uh, the fact that they have tried to cover the Biden connection with China just proves the point that if there's something like that, you you research it, you, you present it to the world, you don't hide it. You hide what you don't want people to see. So evidence. Then um, you would see big tech, as I said, and you can trace them, the connection between big tech and China uh, back to 1994. And uh, Bill Gates, again, plays a very important role here because he opened his first Microsoft store in China in 1992 in Beijing. In 1994, he first visited China and he was received by President Jiang Zemin, by then President Jiang Zemin, almost in a reception for a head of state. And since then, uh, uh, Gates has been a close ally of the Communist Party. He's considered part, actually, of the Communist Party like family, if we can put it in some. He's in the inner circle. He's, he's the only foreign uh, person that has that level of reach and that level of coziness with the uh, communist leaders. So uh, in these meetings, in this meeting and the following that came, uh, just, you know, the keeping in touch with, with the Chinese leader, in 1997, Gates opened uh, the Microsoft Research Center in uh, Beijing, the first uh, research center uh, for technological development uh, for Microsoft in China. And I think it was the first in the West, uh, from the West in China. What you see is that since 1997, with the creation of this, of this uh, research center, the, it has been the cradle of uh, talent for Chinese uh, AI technology programmers, uh, policy officers, etc. And it is through this foundation that China has uh, caught up with the West in terms of technological developments. I, of course, there are more and more companies that came afterwards when China, when China opened its economy and more foreign investment came in. But the role of, of, of Microsoft is fundamental and the role of Gates is fundamental here. In 2000, uh, I think it was in 2006, no, 2003, Hu Jintao was then president of, of China. And in his, ver in his first state visit to the United States, it, this is very, very, you know, wide opening. Instead of, of going directly to Washington and meeting George Bush, he stopped in uh, Seattle. So he first visited Gates, and then he, he paid a visit to the president of the United States. And then the relationship continued with uh, Xi Jinping. Now, what you have to say, and this is interesting, where's the connection, where's the formal connection? And this brings some attention. I think it was in 2007 or 2008 that the first United States-China Internet Industry Forum was created, was organized. And you will find some very, very, you, you'll find pieces of information on the internet because this, this was a series of meetings that went on an annual basis until 2015. That was the last year, all so curious, where uh, the heads of big tech companies from China and the United States with the participation of government officers from the Obama administration and the Hu Jintao and then Xi Jinping administration came up together. They met in Seattle, they, meet, they met in San Francisco, they met in uh, Washington, Beijing, and Shanghai. Every year they would change it. Now, these meetings were closed doors, so we don't know what happened. But then what you see now, when, what, what, 
what is happening now, then you can understand what kinds of things they were looking for. And my hypothesis is that they were already planning how to um, automatize decision-making globally through artificial intelligence technology, cloud computing, um, you know, 5G networks, all the technological infrastructure and the software that is needed to implement a model that is currently operating in China. And this has uh, several implications because, uh, of course, uh, there are pictures. You can see all the leaders of Facebook, Microsoft, uh, Amazon in the Chinese side, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. Xi Jinping even went to a meeting in, in, in I think it was a 2015 one, where he was, uh, he was greeted by Gates himself at Microsoft. So I think they talked about that. Now, what brings me to this conclusion? Um, of course, you can you have pieces of evidence, so you cannot say, oh, this is full proof of what happened, but you can still reach logical conclusions and you can infer. If we are talking in the language of academics, if they want to question what I'm saying, you can reach the logical conclusions and through inferences. Now, um, what you see is a very similar view of, of the world, of, of the term progress. You know, they, they conceptualize and, and visualize progress in very similar terms. These are materialistic, utilitarian, relativistic, universal, unscientific, not scientific, but scientific, where you change, where you, scientism, where you transform science, not into a field of inquiry, but into a religion. And the heads of the Chinese Communist Party are engineers, so they have a very pragmatical way of, of thinking, such as the same way of thinking that big tech and big finance people are. So what they share is this very, very similar view of the world. One under the model of the communist uh, party in China, where the state controls everything de facto, because you will have big tech companies, but Jack Ma has to be a member of the communist party and has to ask for permission to Xi Jinping if he wants to do anything. And he will operate and he will be fine if he becomes an ambassador of the regime, as everyone in big tech companies in China has to be. If you don't want to play under their rules, you will be out immediately. So it's a very strong uh, rule there. And uh, the Chinese have access to all the databases of these companies. When they decide that they want to see something, they will just click their fingers and the information will be there. But on the West, sorry, I will just quickly, with, but in the West, it's different because in the West, while uh, you know you have all these big tech companies, especially the ones at the frontier of artificial intelligence, like Amazon, Google, Apple, uh, Facebook, uh, Microsoft, what you will see is that they own the technologies. It's not, it's not the US government, it's private companies. In China, yes, it's private companies which develop the technologies, but it's the state that de facto owns those technologies. So what do you do in the West? if you have a government that goes against your interests. They were expecting Hillary Clinton to win in 2016, so they would go alongside this great reset in 2016. It didn't happen. So that's why they were so uh, you know, committed to destroying, uh, undermining Trump's presidency. Russia, collusion, a fake thing, Ukraine, um, impeachment, the protests, everything. Plus they share the same enemy, you know, the trade tariff wars between the United States and China. So same enemy, same views of the world. What happened was that they had to undermine the presidency, yes or yes. So 2020, it was the year where they would recover this. And what you see is that 
while in China you have this communist uh, party. In the West, this big government, they, they rent it or they destroy it. And they rent it, what? Through their uh, politicians at, in the Democrat Party, which is a factual statement also. Yeah, I just I had wanted to comment about the, the scientism. And th I think this is a growing problem. Uh, there's a small but growing group of people that I, I am contending with. Uh, it's, like a, it's like a religion because, you know, they, 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 their priests are the authorities, right? Fauci, Bill Gates, the CDC, who... Uh, universities, medical institutions, and they can do no wrong. You know, they're never big pharma, right? They're never corrupt or evil. And so when we're debating on an issue, it's like, I bring up factual science and they mock me. You know, we're talking about vaccine issues, for example, and they say vaccines never harm uh, anyone. And you find right. evidence that, you know, whether it's vaccines or another issue, you, 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 you have factual science that, you know, contradicts some of their theirs but they refuse to look at it and it's like this religion it's 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 really annoying it's a fallacy of authority and again then you can reach for uh, tying it to my first answer to your first question you know what happens with academia right now uh, truth has been submitted you know truth has been subverted by politics by finance by money it's a fact uh, when you see um you talk about what can, how can that happen? Well, it's very simple. You just fuel, you know, research uh, departments around the most prestigious universities with money through philanthropy. And you say, okay, you know, I'm donating $50 million to create the John Connor uh, Rodriguez Center on uh, Gender Equality. Wow, wonderful. So who's the donor? This guy. What do you want to research? I want you to research. These are the lines of research. So they set you the lines of research. You know, so the calls for research, it's, it's an open thing. You can see it. I'm not saying anything that is not true. Yeah, we are uh, providing $3 million for, uh, you know, this research project on AI ethics or on uh, racism and neocolonialism. But every topic will be under the progressive agenda. So, yes, what you have there is that you have to provide results from that research. And the results will not necessarily be tied to truth, but to the political agenda. And this is a fact. This is an open statement. For example, when you see Bill Gates donating $200 million to the University of Cambridge for the Gates Cambridge scholarships, when you see Bloomberg donating millions of dollars to the Johns Hopkins, uh, to Johns Hopkins University, its Department of Medicine, when you see other millions of dollars being donated to Imperial College in London, to Oxford, to the big, you know, to the big universities, well, you start asking yourself, well, is this money just coming for free? No, it, it isn't coming for free. There are interests always. And to think of these people as virtuous, uh, semi-gods, is just absurd. They have interests. They have political interests. They have economic interests. And they have messianic interests because they perceive themselves as semi-gods or even gods. And they, they know better than these masses of idiots that, you know, we have to control because they are destroying our planet. So, yeah, when you see those things, I, I really don't care about the, the science. When they say, oh, we love science, you should believe in science. I was an, an alum, a student of Sir Roger Scruton, the late philosopher. I went, I attended one of his uh, of his uh, some, uh, summer academies in England. And I will never forget when he said, uh, because I asked him this question, and he said, well, science 
is a wonderful thing. Through science, you can, you can reach objective truth. But science does not have all the answers because science does not pose all the questions. And this was a fundamental refutation, a fundamental refutation. Now, if you conceive the human being as a, as a, from a utilitarian and materialistic point of view, yes, you will think we are all reduced to matter and what just uh, matters to us is eating, sleeping, producing, consuming, and you know, just like automats. But human beings are more complex than that. There's a transcendent view of the world. And we have a spiritual needs, which is a very non-scientific term for these people. Um, but it's a fact that people have existential uh, questions. They ask themselves, for example, what is, my, what is my purpose in this life? Every single human being has asked that question at least once. And you will never find an answer through the scientific method. Sorry. And that that just that single question is is a huge black swan if we talk in Popper's terms, a, an enormous black swan that disproves, that falsifies this theory that science has all the answers. So yeah, I I don't care if you come up and say, oh, I have a PhD in whatever in from Harvard. I I really don't care. Show me what you have. I'll value. I'll judge you in terms of your academic quality, in terms of your the quality of your arguments. But don't shun me your, your diploma. You know, I also have a diploma, but I'm never holding, oh, I have a this. I have. You know, if they ask me, I say, okay, my presentation is this. I always say I'm a professor at the University of San Martin de Porres. You are judged in the merits of your arguments, as simple as that. And academia right now is, is totally polluted. Mm-hmm. Or mostly. Um, so you've brought us up to the election. So you, you've kind of laid the, laid the foundation and you've explained, you know, we had this idea of technocracy or however you want to call it, uh, but the, the technology never caught up to it. So now we've reached the point in history where, you know, the, the technology has uh, reached parity with these with the scientific, you know, dictatorship, ideology, techno feudalism. And now it seems they're, they're implementing it globally and so now, now we have, you know, COVID comes. So, so to move in from, from COVID into the Great Reset now, projecting ahead, you know, the next 10 years. Um, so, you know, I call it COVID-1984. I, I see it as something that was planned, whatever it is. I, I think I that the, 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 docu- the documentation is there. Most of my listeners will, they're very well versed in, in, in this. You know, 2019, last year, we had half a dozen pandemic war games, many specifically on coronavirus. This is unheard of. Uh, and so, you know, in the coming days, I'm interviewing, again, uh, bioweapons expert, Dr. Francis Boyle. Uh, I was the first to interview him in, in January, on, and he said coronavirus was a biological weapon. And, you know, that interview got 300,000 plus uh, views on YouTube, uh, my biggest ever, and then YouTube deleted it. Uh, and so, um, he, he says it's a patented gain-of-function virus. And it seems to me that th- this was planned, this this pandemic, and it was to jumpstart like what, what you just described. We've reached this parity, and it was like, like you jumpstart a battery in a car to bring us into the age of biopolitics and the digital biosecurity state, which I guess can just be another term for you know, techno-feudalism, um, technocracy. So how do you view COVID uh, and its function and, and pushing us forward into the Great Reset. Well, let's put it in very simple terms. If Hillary Clinton had won in 2016, we would have never had a pandemic. Let's put it that way. And I'll summarize the argument there. There was a need, as I say, as I explained, the interests, you know, of these uh, 
as we call them, elites. Why? It, people have to stop thinking in complex terms. Just go to the, to the basic questions, you know. First of all, why would someone want to do this? Typical question. Well, because the thirst for power, for, for money, and the thirst for glory and transcendence of, of some who have the, the financial muscle and the political muscle to implement this is so big that they are willing to do this because they know better. And as I again, as I say, this is a very important idea. We are destroying their planet. We're destroying the, the deplorables are destroying destroying the planet. Too many too many mouths to too mouths to feed, and you know you know don't produce, you don't consume. You're just uh, garbage, and we have to get rid of you. Well, the garbage is my term, so I, they don't say oh he's. So these people, you know, we we know better for them. So what you have is a need for uh, undermining one of the most, if not the most popular president in U.S. modern history, which is Trump. I have not seen a level, and statistics will support this. There has been no more popular president than President Trump. Not even Reagan reached these levels of popularity. So you have that. So you have to undermine the the possibilities of this guy being reelected, because another four terms, China is not going to wait for more years. So you have to win yes or yes. And I can say, right now confidently that in the very very unlikely uh, scenario that the supreme court uh, accepts you know because they are they have accepted the texas lawsuit against these uh, four states in the very unlikely uh, situation that they rule in favor of trump i can guarantee you that they will not uh, accept that result because they are they don't accept any other power the agenda must be implemented, yes or yes, no question about that. Now, what you see is that the need to, the conception of this world, you know, as a global village, that you have to concede two different models, the Chinese versus, you know, the Western elite, but they control and manufacture the technologies. First of all, they have a, a total, both of them have a total disdain for democracy, <laughs> proves about. They have a thirst for power and an obsession with control. You know, now they control us, uh, what we see, what we publish, what we don't publish, what we, everything. Everything in our lives is controlled. All the information that we set up in our, in our cell phones is tracked. Now they say for commercial purposes, who knows what ha will happen in the future. So yes, the need to create this global village. Now, what do I see in terms of what is going to, to happen in the future, this great reset, what it looks like is the restriction of further freedoms, the restriction in terms of our mobilities, in terms of our freedom to choose our work and our economic activities, because now through that Paris Agreement that Biden has said, you know, he's going to rejoin, it's a $93 trillion, listen to this number, $93 trillion budget plan. The U.S. GDP last year was 19.4 trillion. So you are talking about something that is 4.5 times the U.S. GDP's output. So it's absurd. If you really wanted, with, the, with that amount of money, you would literally solve human hunger forever, like forever, you know? But then again, what you see is the need to create this for me, which is that, let's say, the, the umbrella agenda, which is the environment, which provides a justification, not only for surveillance, 
or sociometric control, but this also has uh, a component of biometric control. Sociometric from the outside, this uh, uh, Yuval Noah Harari has talked about this, you know, surveillance outside of our bodies of cameras, drones, uh, face recognition, voice, speech recognition, but biometric surveillance, this is, well, people start speculating here with nanobots and, and but at the end, microchipping exists. You know, nanobots are technically possible. And we uh, can think of, you know, certain chemicals or particles that can be injected into our into our body and then perhaps react uh, through an, an X-ray screen. Who knows? The technology makes it is possible. So it's not only conspiracy theories. Why are we distrustful of this? Because they have been so so dirty and so non-transparent in you know in every single aspect of this COVID nineteen ride. They have you know censorship. It's a factual thing. We're not conspiring. It's true. If you dare to say something against you know that 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 dominant narrative, something that is based from experience, not from words, but from factual empirical experience of millions of people who have been losing their jobs, you know, who have people, family members that have died, whose livelihoods will be forever destroyed. That is not important. What is important is the narrative. So then you say, well, th things are not, are not working here properly. What I see then is a restriction of our free, further restriction of our freedoms, not only where, what we will, uh, where we will go or what we will do for, for a living, but also our consumer, our consumer options. I, I, I forecast, and this is another hypothesis, which time will have to prove. Unfortunately, I hope I am absolutely wrong, that uh, eventually, you know, uh, supermarkets will start seeing a restriction in the number of and the variety of products that they offer. So you can expect meat disappearing at some point because, you know, that little, the cows and the methane and the whatever, or animal cruelty, legal rights. And then there's a whole stream here through practical ethics. And Peter Singer, I recommend that you check out the works of that Australian philosopher. Um, where we are placing humans at the same level of animals and we are all having rights now. So we have been downgraded to the category of animals. Um, then restrictions, for example, in our, in our thinking, censorship. So yes, and of course, the PLEP, you know, the global PLEP confined to these smart cities. Smart means a violation of your privacy. That's the translation. Smart means they are raping your privacy. That's the translation. So confining this in these smart cities, which will be like, you know, a kind of a Victorian housing in England in the 19th century, every single one will have like a little, and we will, because they say it's inclusive. Yes, we will all be included in this smart village. It is it's the inclusive, it is, um, what they say, inclusive, equal, equality. Yes, we will all be included and we will be equally surveilled and equally living in the same equal conditions. And sustainable, of course, because we will be containing these cities and the the forests and everything will start growing, and these people will just have their jets and their private uh, yachts, and they will go in their one hundred and twenty million dollar yachts, you know, to these unspoiled lands and seas where they will see the whales, you know, having all these feast in their in their yachts, and not seeing the deplorables because they will be confined 
in these smart cities. That's my hypothesis. And the other thing, it's very, very telling. I don't know if you are aware of what happened in California, these lockdown uh, rules. Well, of course you must be. This strict lockdown that has come to California. And you see, it doesn't make any sense. Why are they confining Californians so badly? Because California is a wonderful place. I've been there many times. Beautiful beaches, wonderful you know, weather, good food, but it's full of deplorables. So you make it really expensive. You make it really expensive or you destroy the economy of the people who still, you know, grip into the state because they want to live there. It has been their homeland for how many decades, but you have to get rid of them. Too many people, 40 million. We have to move them. The fires, you know, oh, it's always the fires. Yeah, move them, you know, behind the mountains behind the mountains because we want this corridor from you know from San Diego to Seattle we want it clear uh, sorry yeah you can say oh you're a conspiracy theory sorry the facts are telling me this you know how many people can stay now in California if you're paying such high rents and if the costs of food is so high why is it so expensive because they are artificially killing the economy as simple as that and yeah your vision of the future I, I would agree. You know, six months ago, I spoke with the uh, renowned uh, Jewish historian Edwin Black, um, and he painted an even starker picture than you. You know, he said the future, he calls it the algorithm ghetto. So, you know, like Jews were put into these physical Absolutely. ghettos. He calls it the algorithm ghetto. And he says, uh, you know, like these are smart cities, you know, the governor the, the, where I'm living is the second biggest city in, in Mexico. And the governor, I, I have the official reports, like you say, it's not a conspiracy theory. I have the official reports from the Rockefeller Foundation that says uh, resilient cities, where are resilient cities, receive funding from Rockefeller, World Bank, you know, all of these big organizations to remake the city. And it literally says in the report, cashless city, pre-crime, it says pre-crime, smart surveillance city. And exactly what you said, it's all documented. And as Edwin Black says, it's going to be algorithm ghetto. And we're, we're already seeing people who they've had all of their social media terminated. Um, they've had apps such as Uber. They're banned from using Uber uh, or Airbnb. So, you know, they can't stay at hotels. They can't move. Um, it's, it's really a nasty future. And so just kind of my, my final question is, you know, in terms of battling or, or resisting, or as the X-Files once said, you know, fighting the future, there are two camps. You know, one group is optimistic that we will turn this ship around as humanity has in history. And the other camp that, you know, this is the true end of history, the final revolution, as Aldo Huxley uh, stated, and perhaps, you know, the biblical end times. I, I'm in both camps, okay? You know, I feel that this scientific dictatorship is is, is inevitable, yet that, that by no means, will, you know, will they drag me into it peacefully? I'll be going kicking and screaming. Uh, and it's, you know, our, our duty to, to fight back regardless. And, you know, H.G. Wells prophesied in his book about the New World Order that many upstanding citizens and people would die resisting and fighting this world state. And so, you know, my current plan is resisting, figuring out how do we survive in this dystopia that you, that you laid out uh, up until the point uh, of death if necessary. And, you know, from your travels, research, talks, experience, how do we individually and collectively resist or fight against this? Well, I mean, uh, one thing to consider is that the risk, uh, uh, the risk of the losers or the fact is that if you lose, your version of history will not be portrayed. It will be the version of history portrayed by the winners. So one piece of advice, which might sound very simple 
and very unimportant is record your writings or print them. Have them in printing. <laughs> Just have a record of, of, of history in writing in physical documents. Do not set everything on the net because they will just take one delete button and your history will be erased. Um, it's a very, very dark future. And that's why I have committed myself so, so deeply into this, into this uh, task, you know, uh, which is very, very ungrateful because you have a lot of, you pay much more than you gain from this. And you, your payments are in every aspect of your life. So people would say, why are you pulling for this? People like you and others around the world. It's a matter of uh, conviction, I would say. It's a matter of what you know is being is doing the right thing, which these people will dismiss because it's not scientific. Well, I don't care. It is a fact. I, I just hate, I really hate suffering and abuse. I rebel against abuse. I have always done, since I was a school kid, when I saw the weaker friends of mine being bullied and harassed, I would defend them in school. And uh, I just can't stand this, you know, I cannot understand how such levels of greed and vision, ambition and vanity have taken a group of people to think that they can decide for, for all of us. And this whole climate change and resource depletion thing is just BS, plain BS, because the world is so massive. And just to put it in very simple terms, you know, okay, we live in the, in the surface of the world. What happens if we go 100 meters down into the ground and we start ex you know exploiting the resources in those 100 meters down it just doesn't make sense and we have the technologies right now to re replace and the knowledge to replace what we have harvested so why don't spend that money in you know training people in the developing world to make sustainable use of the resources because of course i want to be very clear i am also in favor of protecting the environment I recommend everyone to, to read this wonderful book by Roger Scruton, Green Philosophy, and where he explains, you know, the environmental cause is a conservative cause. It's not a liberal one. It's not a Marxist one. It is at a core, a conservative cause. And actually, when you read the definition of sustainable development from the Blunt, uh, Brundtland Commission, it is Edmund Burke paraphrased, you know, make use of the, of the, of the resources so for future generations to not uh, have problems. So that's basically the intergenerational association that Burke made, you know, your commitment and your duty to the generations that came before you and the ones that are going to come. So we are in favor of that. I am against injustices. I'm against in discrimination. I think gay people should have uh, legal rights just like heterosexual people should have but respecting the institutions of heterosexuals. If you want to, you know, uh, live your life with another person, that's, uh, I mean, that's your, your situation, that's your decision, but don't prostitute the institutions. Don't, don't deconceptualize them because it's not meant for you. So I would share, you know, against animal abuse, we are human beings. They have portrayed all the opponents, you know, the critics as nasty Nazis, you know, misogynist, uh, uh, patriarchal people. That's, that's a bunch of BS. So that's what motivates people like you and me, I would say, to, to do this fight. What can we do? We, we, have, we, we can get into trouble, um, but um, so I will not get you and me into trouble because, you know, but yes, what you are thinking that that you know you can go through a very um 
peaceful way, which as I would always advocate peaceful resolutions of conflicts. But there's a point, and I recommend people to read another book so they can frame it in theoretical terms. Uh, this uh, wonderful book by uh, Douglas North, uh, Wallis and Weingast, it's called Violence and Social, that was by North, uh, Violence and Social Orders, where he explains how factions compete and they form dominant coalitions moved by the distribution of rents. It's a wonderful theory that makes sense of, that explains what is happening now. So what, what you would see is, you know, that that dominant coalition has closed every uh, possible uh, institutionalized democratic way to deal with problems. They are suffocating people in poverty, in misery, in disease, in lack of hope, you know, in, in, in ignorance and misinformation. What do you want? How do you expect people to react? And this is not the minority. This is the vast majority of the population. So what do you expect? Do you expect people to just bow and say, say thank you, master? I'm sorry. Well, we will try to talk. We will try to go through these means, you know, very civilized, dealing with very unfair and very authoritarian measures like deletion of, of, of accounts or censorship of, of content, which is not misinformation. It's not. It is information and it's points of views that are different. But if those roads are closed, what are you left to? I mean, it's not that I am even advocating for it. I would say, please don't don't force people to do this because you are putting so much pressure that 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 a pan at some point is going to blow. And I don't have to be a scientist to explain this. Anyone with common sense would reach to the same conclusion. So I hope that doesn't happen. Um, the media, big tech, and the governments under the services of this progressive agenda have been very, very active su uh, suppressing content and misinformating people of the reality. But the reality is, and you can start feeling it in the streets, in every single country, at least friends I know and the place where I live, people are getting fed up of this and they are not going to take it anymore. So I don't know. I don't want to say what has to be done, but when your home is um, threatened, you defend it. All right. Uh, we'll leave it there. And definitely, you know, hopefully it doesn't come to that. Um, I will uh, post the links to all your sites uh, in the description. Is there any particular website or project that you would, you want us to know about? No, just my YouTube channel. It's my main communication uh, source of communication with my subscribers, with the friends that follow me. And uh, yeah, I would say my YouTube channel. I post content mostly in Spanish, but I have some videos in English. The next one is coming in English. So you can take have a, a look of, of what I've done. But yeah. um, mm -hmm. basically that, no? I'll be sure, I'll be sure to, to share that uh, upcoming talk. So, okay, thank you, Dr. Miklos uh, Lucas. Thanks for the amazing work that you do and the example you set uh, of being brave, disregarding the slander thrown at you. Uh, it encourages the rest of us to follow suit. So thank you for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Thank you, Hervoy, and uh, warm greetings to your people, to your subscribers and followers. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. 
You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.